This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back. This is Dollars and Change. I'm Catherine Klein. And I'm Sandy Marrowhunt. And I want to know if we're the co- coolest. I mean, like, do, do the, are, is it only the co-hosts of Dollars and Change that dance to the music, you know? <laughs> anybody, anybody else got rhythm on the, among the co-hosts? We, I don't know. We did have, we had a guest producer last week. Our producer, Matt, was two weeks ago out at the Super Bowl, and we had a guest producer, and afterwards she said, I'm so jealous. Matt has a really fun show. You guys are fun. So. <laughs> we try to be fun. We try to be fun. We try to be interesting. We're having fun. And we find this so interesting. And today, uh, we get to talk all about big data. It's hard not to dance when you're talking about big data. <laughs> 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 this is really annoying stuff uh, at 8 a.m. At 8 a.m. It's good. No, it's really, it is really fascinating. And I think it, uh, to continue our, our little playful approach here, I'm thinking that this, uh, our next guest will indeed help us dance with big data. So we're going to be talking with Kenneth Couquier, who is senior editor of Digital for The Economist, author of a number of uh, best-selling books on big data, including Big Data, A Revolution That Will Transform How We Work, Live, and Think and more recently, author of Learning with Big Data, The Future of Education. Kenneth Kuke, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be on. Great to have you with us. So, uh, you know, as, as you may have heard as we're talking, we've, we've begun to dig into this topic. We, we know that we have a lot to learn on big data. We know that our listeners have a lot to learn on big data. And it seems like you're going to be a great source as somebody who has written and thought extensively about the topic. Um, Let's start with how you got into the topic of, of big data. You know, uh, what, what drew you to this topic and drew you to dig in? Yeah, a great question. And it's absolutely by luck how all these things usually do happen. I was the technology correspondent for The Economist, uh, and I was actually sent off into a hermetically sealed box, as it were, called Japan. I was the Tokyo correspondent at the time after spending many years around the world in lots of different countries writing about business and technology and politics, too. And while I was in Japan... Um, it, it was a lucky place to be because I could watch the rest of the world with sort of a not being in the soup of it, but being sort of in the Galapagos Island of news because it's so different in, as a place than the rest of the world. And so I was just I just had this insight, and this is around I should say around 2008, 2009, that uh, that in a world in which everything sort of decays and goes away and things get smaller. Uh, the amount of data in the world is just increasing, and we're, we can probably now do something interesting with it that we never could before. That was the only insight that I had, and so I pitched the editors on a cover story. And what year is this? This is now, now it's, the, it's around mid-2009, okay. and I pitched the editors on a cover story on information as a theme for a 15-page special report with which you get a big budget, you can fly around the world, talk to all the world's leading experts, and then write this very big monumental work. <clears throat> and honestly, what I'd written was, was absolutely sort of a salesman's pitch, salesman's pitch, but wasn't actually real. I was sort of inventing things a little bit with flights of fancy, figuring I had at least, because I could strategize when I'd actually have to file and be, be done with it. I had about a year to actually put it all together. I thought this was okay. That's the next thing that I got wrong, which is they accepted <laughs> it. And then a month later, they said, by the way, we need it in three months. And I had, I had to go off. And usually you get about eight weeks to do this, nine weeks. I went off, um, told my family and my small little child I loved them, but I was headed to Silicon Valley, and I went there, and I 
traveled actually around the world into almost every continent, uh, talking to the world's leading experts, and was totally despondent to find out that there was no there there, and I totally missed it. Um, there was long. no there there. Now, this was not a conclusion that I expected you were going to say, so I'm fascinated. Let's keep going. Yeah. On, in Silicon Valley, after spending a week with Google and a week with Microsoft, um, I was sort of crying into my cup. Uh, with an acquaintance of mine who I'd known actually from Tokyo, of all things. And he's always trying to butt in as I'm trying to tell him about how I had this great idea of how information has changed the world, but I couldn't find it, couldn't find it. He says, do you know what I do for a living? And I looked up and I said, no, you're the CEO of some company. It's a technology company. He says, it's, yeah, it turns out it was a data company. And what he did is he was able to introduce me to this really small community, this group of people that were doing things that nobody else in the world were doing. They were applying statistics that had never been really used in the traditional stats community. They were thinking about software products in a way that traditional software vendors never did it. They were using online information in a way that most websites didn't yet know that they could do. And this small little group of people had a term for what they were doing, and it was called big data. And this is around early, this is mid-2009. And so I realized I'm fascinated to realize how recent the term came into the vernacular. It feels ever-present now. Like, really? It was 2009 and we weren't talking about this very much? (laughs) Yeah, it turns out you could find instantiations of the the word pair earlier. There was a government report, you know, uh, about astrophysics and IT that talks about it in the 60s and just put the word big and data together. But, and there's even a, there's a consultant who talks about having put out a, a memo on the idea of big data, and, and he's maybe coined the modern instantiation of it. But it turned, the reality is that there was, there was lots of terms kind of batting around, and the term big data sort of stuck in the same way that cloud computing is another great term that people talk about. But there were lots of different variants and flavors of it uh, before we sort of, as a community, settled on one. And so big data is actually quite new because it actually – breaks a lot of the traditional ways that people worked with information up until that point. So to, so to continue your story for at least a, to, to its conclusion, you're talking, you're over coffee, you're, you're meeting with this person who says, essentially, I do big data. Uh, exactly. And it sounds like this was the eye-opening moment for you to, where, where you found that your hypothesis, your insight, you know, there, that there was, in fact, some there there. Yeah, so it turns out that there was, a, there's a, there was a community of people, and now it's much, much larger, but at the time there was a group of people that were using new tools and new techniques to extract new forms of value from information that hadn't been done before because this cornucopia of information really didn't even exist just a decade before. It took mostly the online world, and so it was actually in search engines, in particular Google and then Yahoo, that first found themselves sitting on this huge abundance of data that they could learn something new with it. Let me explain exactly what I mean. It's a really easy story. Search engine queries have typos in them. And for... Mine have a lot of typos in them. Exactly. Well, there's a reason why they are. They're getting worse. And they're getting worse is because you don't have to spell it correctly anymore. The search engine gets it correctly. Oh, yeah. I don't even... Like, if I'm Googling something on my phone, I just like, yeah, close enough. It's going (laughs) to give me what I want. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. Google... So the search engines have trained us that we don't have to spell correctly. They'll still find our finding. How do they do that? Well, what happened was around the year 2000 or so, uh, there there was a great tradition for search engines to clean variants of, of misspellings to get you what you really wanted. Google had a different insight. Google and, and just to, just to sort of contextualize that for our listeners, so that is, you know, I type in Drunken Donuts and it says, don't you mean Dunkin' Donuts? But then I have to click and say, yes, 
That is what I mean. So that's the way it used to be. Precisely. Well, actually, what they did was even more insidious. What they did is they just presumed that you meant Dunkin' Donuts, and so they take it to Dunkin' Donuts. Um, so if there was a Drunken Donuts, <laughs> um, if there's something called Obamacare, they may have changed to something else. You'd never find it, right? It was a problem, right? iPhone and other terms that just come in and out of the language. So that's true. So oh, the first okay. variation of, of Google was to realize that we just use a machine learning algorithm. We make a prediction whether this is what they really want, and we disclose to them. Now what they do is actually the inverse. They give you Dunkin' Donuts and then ask you, do you mean Drunken Donuts? So they've inverted it because everyone's misspelling things. But that's exactly right. What they've done is they've just looked at statistically at instances of this word pair, Dunkin' and Donuts, and said, oh, they probably mean this. Giving a lot of airtime to Dunkin' Donuts on the show because <laughs> it's in right. front of me. <laughs> that's right. It's just math. But you needed someone to have that insight that you could learn from misspellings to find new signal from the noise. And that was the, that's the first step in. Once you take that approach, here's another approach. If you see that if you want to rank search results and people are searching for roughly the same thing, say it's Prince and it's a guitar, and they're all clicking, most of the clicks are going to the seventh search result, you engineer the algorithm so that it notices this and it treats where they're clicking as a signal and it brings it back up. So now it, it takes the seventh result and puts it up to maybe the first or second result and it takes those other results that were higher and brings it lower. Again, it's a machine learning algorithm, but the point here is that it's learning from the data and the more data you have, the better its prediction of what is accurate or not. So that approach, that just mental m- mindset, Google applied to absolutely everything that it did. And so as a result, it did extremely well. Amazon would do this as well, also in terms of recommendation engines. Facebook did this in looking at the signals that best predicted that someone who signs onto the service will continue with the service, and so on and so on and so on. But by 2009, there was only a handful. There was maybe about 150 people in Silicon Valley who, were really, who really understood what was going on and why this mattered. And it was growing from there. What I stumbled into was the fact that I was knocking on the door of the traditionalists who were not really aware of it, or if they were, they didn't want to talk to me about it because they knew it was just so valuable. And when what I did get was an entree into the community of big data, The Economist published a, a, a very large and successful cover story in the beginning of 2010. I then co-wrote a book on it, and from there on, from now on, I, I now actually at The Economist work in part doing our big data strategy. Yeah. So uh, we're talking with Kenneth Couquier, who is senior editor of Digital for The Economist and and, an author who has written a lot about and thought a lot about big data. Ken, I'd love you to talk about as you, you know, it's it's now eight years later. uh, The term big data is is pretty ubiquitous. When you think of the the positive impact of big data, how big data can be harnessed, used, how we can gain insights from big data that can really make a difference in the world. Let's let's talk about a you know a, a success story. Um, I'll start there. I, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be lots of follow ups. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm thinking the success story. The, the 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 challenges sometimes you got the great insights, but they they don't actually you know stick. But let's start with a success story. When you think we could not have learned this very important thing and ideally changed this something with the big without big data. Sure. There, there's just so many, and I should also hasten to add that we're just at the outset of mm-hmm. this big data era, and if you will, machine learning or AI era, because it's, it's sort of of a, of a piece. So although we're going to, I can give you some embryonic examples, it's, we've seen nothing yet. But I'll give you, I'll give you uh, one great one that I love, which is 
using search queries to uh, predict who is likely to have uh, pancreatic cancer. Now, the problem with pancreatic cancer, Ooh, yeah, pancreatic so. cancer is, is probably the worst cancer to get. And the reason why is by the time it's diagnosed, it's the death, the person's, it's, it's so advanced because the signals are so weak, although there's many of them, that, um, that, the, that, it's, that, that the person is basically, we're talking about the amount of time they have to live, not, not any survival rates. So there's, there's differences sometimes, but that's basically the case. So if you can get an early lens into by maybe five months or a year or even maybe three weeks, uh, the chances of surviving it is much higher than if you just simply present yourself to a clinic when things are already sort of falling apart. So these lightweight uh, uh, signals are things like a yellowing of the skin, a brittleness uh, of the skin, um, a, a, a tallowed color stool. All right? I mean, these are terrible things. Say that it's sort of a yellowish, chalky colored poo. Right? Things that you would really wouldn't really want to, if you, if you saw or happened once or twice, you really wouldn't want to talk to someone about, go to a doctor, because you sort of want to ignore it and see what happens. However, you might Google it, or you might or go onto a search engine. Uh, and so why that's so important is that what Microsoft research was able to do with some pioneering, pioneering research was to look at search queries of, and then make a prediction whether someone who is searching for multiple variants and ways of expressing these symptoms indeed then you know, had pancreatic cancer. And so there's actually a way to do that. You look at people's search queries over a long period of time. You look at people who start searching for things related to pancreatic cancer all of a sudden. Mm. Um, and then you go back in time and you look at what were the things that they were searching for in, say, the 12-month period, 18-month period, leading up to that time that there was this momentous wham moment of being intensely interested in searches related to pancreatic cancer. And if you see these things, you would be able to identify that they may have said something like what to do about um, yellow poo. Right? So, Ken, this is a great example. Can you talk with us about how one goes from that kind of insight to, to action to get treatment to folks earlier? Sure. So what you would do in a situation, it's a great question, because what you would do in a situation like that is not write a letter saying, we think you have pancreatic cancer. Uh, false alarms there. You're gonna, it, there's going to be so much anxiety for people. And there might even be a creepiness that would have people try to leave this sort of system, although the system could save their life. So what you would do is, if you were, say, an insurance company, or, if you're some, or say you're the employer and you see this is happening and you've sort of set this up in advance, that you have the privacy permissions that set up, that you would simply say, you're eligible for a free health checkup. Or mm. maybe you would simply say, um, you, you've been requested for a health checkup, and you don't even say why. And the reason why is that there's a lot of false alarms. I mean, the person's brother might have pancreatic cancer, and you don't want to give this person so much terrible stress to think that he himself has it when he's just been checking it for someone else, or someone else was using his, his computer. So you want to be really careful about it. Also, it's just a prediction, right? It's, it's just a probability, and so you wouldn't be... Because, of course, the person hasn't yet started talking about pancreatic cancer. They're only talking about these little symptoms, and it could be something else. So what you would do is you would have an intervention that, if you will, camouflages with respect, camouflages the nature of why you're doing this, and it probably takes a centralized authority of some sort, maybe the, the employer, a health care provider, um, a... Uh, uh, if, if you belong to, if you have, say, a fitness tracker and they're also tracking other things and you've given them that permission, it might be the company that you interact mm. with in that mm. way. So because it's unlikely for an individual, it's possible, but still unlikely for an individual maybe to click a box and sign up for this service, 
but it would be a very valuable thing for, say, a health insurance company uh, to offer to its corporate uh, health uh, a client to say, we will also do this as well, and we'll save your, save your employees' lives. We're talking with Kenneth Kukier, Senior Editor of Digital for The Economist. We're talking all about big data and, and where big data is making a difference. Ken, can you talk to us about an area that is, uh, I think, more complicated in some ways and where there's been criticism of big data, though there may be possibilities for big data, and that's around crime. I'm thinking particularly around recidivism and, you know, is there a, a predicting um, whether somebody is going to, you know, re-enter the the, um, the criminal system, you know, commit crimes and so on, uh, and end up in this this terrible revolving door of incarceration. So, what about big data and crime? Yeah, it's a really controversial issue, and um, and uh, sadly, it's not. It's the the people who have taken the loudest voice have been the critics because there is so much to criticize. But the tragedy of that is that the case is not being made well enough by the people who are in support of this because they look like either they're just a cop and of course they're in support of it or more importantly the cops aren't really out speaking about this but um or the or the, the public justice community see so the judges aren't either but it's really the commercial vendors and then it looks like they just have, they're just on the hawk for a commercial interest so let me then take on this role of explaining the issue but also sort of defending it so the issue is this uh, we can run algorithms against people who are, say, present themselves before a judge, and we can say, uh, when, if in this case of parole, if they're likely to reoffend or not. And the systems kind of work. They work well enough-ish. They're probably better than the current system right now, where you have a three-person a panel of someone who thinks they can sort of look somebody in the eye and determine if they're going to you know, commit a crime again, and maybe the per- person's religious, and the, and, the, and the inmate says, I found God in my cell, and the guy says he's one of us, and so let's, let's bring him. Um, it's not a good system. So if you can help support the decision of a human being, and I think we should have this hybrid system, not one or the other, um, support the, the human being with some information to say people in these sort of circumstances that have done these sorts of things are more likely to come back or more likely to go free, uh, and, and not commit a, again a, a crime again. That it would it would bolster the uh, the decision making process and support the human being who has to make a decision. So you would want to do this, and the systems work fairly well. But the problem is twofold. One, the systems work, but they seem to have an implicit bias in them. They sure. seem to uh, suggest that black people are more likely to offend than white people yep. when they leave the prison system and come back. And, and the second problem is that this is the, tra- the algorithms themselves are not transparent. Let me be very controversial and try to defend the system. Brief, In- briefly, we're, get, we're getting, we're, we're getting yep. close to running out of time, but it's a really important and interesting topic, so go for it. Yeah. Super briefly, the problem is that the recidivism rates for blacks is higher than it is for whites. So the, it's not that the algorithm itself is biased. The algorithm has the same natural Sure. as the ground truth that it's trying to un- understand. The, pro- the, the more serious problem is transparency. They, it is egregious of the, of the judicial system not to have tested these systems better, they need to, and secondly, to require the commercial vendors to open up their algorithms to public scrutiny or a private but concerned interest scrutiny around it so that we can all have the confidence in it. 
if we don't have the confidence in it, we shouldn't be using it. Right, right. And I, and I assume that these systems also, I mean, the risk is that they reinforce, you know, they, they reinforce, there's a potential for reinforcing racial bias in the, you know, in the criminal justice system. So, you know, closer scrutiny of, of black communities and so on. So, you know, yes, we have this evidence of what's what's happened in the past, but we, we may risk perpetuating it. So in the in, in, in a minute, no, not a minute, <laughs> in a sentence, what's next for big data, but we're running out of time? Artificial intelligence, machine learning, it is going to touch absolutely everything in society in the same way that the computer has All touched right. everything in society. And it's, it's the world's going to be a better place. <laughs> I yeah, hope right. you're right. And we, uh, we've been talking with Kenneth Kukier. Kenneth, thanks so much for being with us. Fascinating conversation on big data. We're going to continue on this theme and learn uh, just more about this important topic. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.